This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM in Santa Barbara. Today I'll be reading Women Only and the Year of the Big Thaw by Marion Zimmer Bradley. I've been hesitant to do an episode about Marion Zimmer Bradley due to the uh, sexual abuse and assault accusations raised by two of her children and others against her uh, posthumously. And I'm not going to go into any detail about the accusations in this episode, but I do plan on talking about how it has affected the public and my own's response to her work. Marion Zimmer Bradley was born in 1930, and her first short story was published in Amazing Stories at the age of 19. She was a prolific and accomplished science fiction and fantasy writer and novelist. She also wrote under pseudonyms uh, for gay and lesbian pulp novels, which were at the time considered pornographic. Marion Zimmer Bradley was viewed as a feminist icon and LGBT rights activist until about four years ago. 15 years after her death, when her daughter spoke up about her experiences. The science fiction community responded supporting her daughter and in outrage against Bradley. So, as I said before, I was hesitant to do an episode because of the rape allegations. Uh, In light of the Me Too movement, I've struggled with the question of how we should respond to the artwork of abusers. What should we do with the work of people like Woody Allen, Bill Cosby, Louis C.K., Marion Zimmer Bradley? Should we stop watching these films and reading these books because of authors' actions? I don't believe in financially supporting these creatives, but my decision has been to still engage with the media critically. It casts a shadow and can lead to some pretty gut-wrenching responses to some thing that I would normally just kind of pass over. You know, watching Woody Allen's 1978 interiors and wondering why there was a completely unnecessary attempted rape scene that has no consequences. Or that one-liner where Rob complains that a call from Alvy interrupted him in bed with a 16-year-old twins in Annie Hall. Or cringing at Lucy Key's jokes about masturbation. Reading one of Marion Zimmer Bradley's short stories, The Wind People, where a woman and her 16-year-old son embrace, and she realizes they are only one step away from incest, runs sobbing into the forest, and commits suicide. I mean, I just want to preface that the stories today, uh, neither of them have any incestual overtones. And uh, despite Marion Zimmer Bradley's history... I do enjoy some of her stories. She is a good writer, especially compared to some of her pulp science fiction contemporaries. Today I'll be reading Women Only and Year of the Big Thaw by Marion Zimmer Bradley. In the background, we have been listening to Joy Boy by Julius Eastman, performed by the SEM Ensemble, which was recorded live on Wednesday, November 6th in 19. 19- 74 at Composers Forum in Albany. This archival work was recently released this past year by Frozen Reads. Julius Eastman was an African-American composer, pianist, and vocalist born in 1940. He called his work organic music, where each phrase contained a bit of the previous phrase. Eastman was one of the few 
African Americans who gained recognition in avant-garde music during this time, and his work spoke about race while his contemporaries dealt with pure sound and repetition. He died in 1990 homeless with many of his comp compositions thrown out when he was evicted, but recently some of his work has come to light. So we'll listen to a little bit of that more and then start with Bradley's stories. Thank you. 
Women Only first appeared in Vortex Science Fiction, Volume 1, Number 2, in 1953. Women Only by Marion Zimmer Bradley. They had moved me into a private room by visiting hours. They had, as usual, been trouble about the wards. At any other time, the old sensitive hurt I could never quite control would have bothered me, but today I was too happy to care. I lay in the high hospital bed, listening to the street noises, hearing the rumbling trundle of rubber-tired carts, smelling that funny smell that was familiar and strange at once, the smell that was home to me more than any other. Down in the nursery, I could hear one of the babies squalling, and clumsily, with a strange kind of emotion, I wondered if that was my little girl crying. I couldn't feel quite as I should, but I would when I got used to it a little. My baby. She looked just like any other baby I'd ever seen. I hadn't seen many, and of course, she didn't have the regulation identifications yet. She didn't look quite human. No new baby, I thought defensively. No baby that young looks human. They had brought her in early in the afternoon, and I had held her, a dimpled, wriggly bundle in my arms, and fed her the special nutrients out of the bubble. Of course, it was too much to hope that I could ever breastfeed her. We can't hope for too many miracles, the doctor had said very kindly. It's wholly a matter of hormones. But if you cuddle her a lot when you feed her, she won't know the difference. I hoped she wouldn't. I didn't want her to be cheated of anything I could give her, ever. All the childhood things I had read about, the little girl things, dolls and hair ribbons, dancing off to school mornings in a clean frock, all these things that I had never had. I wanted her to have these memories, the bitter and sweet memories of childhood, the slow acquiring of knowledge and experience, not like mine, springing full-blown and mechanical, the thought of a mature woman forced on a new, new body, so terribly, hurtingly new, and no time given to assimilate it all and grow gradually to a real understanding. My knowledge of these things was a vague empathy. It did not arise spontaneously from within. It was a synthetic analysis, a conscious correlation of what I had read and what people had told me. Childhood, magic world, magic land, fairyland. With me forever exiled from that glory, but she would know it firsthand. She would live a child. She would be a child. Child, as she was miracle. Maybe. The reporters swarmed in on the first tick of visiting hours. I hadn't quite expected them, but now I remember some of the articles I'd seen. Jay had been careful to keep them away from me. I had never been quite sure why. I was even less sure now, knowing that I was big news, feeling my eyes blinded 
with the flare of flash cameras going off in my face and the door full of strange faces. A barrage of questions exploded against my ears. Tell us, Miss D, how did this happen anyway? Had you wanted a boy or a girl? Can we see the, can we see it, Miss D? Every editor in the country wants pictures. What does the proud father have to say? They all seemed marvelously nice, wonderfully friendly. I said, faint with the confusion of it all. Yes, no, I don't know. The hospital board can tell you. The charge nurse will know. The door opened again and Jay walked in and the reporters cluttered inquisitively around him, voices lowered, a bumble of drones. He elbowed his way free and came to me. Lifted up one of my hands and pressed it lightly between his own. Hi, how are you feeling, pretty? Fine, I told him and smiled to show I meant it. You don't mind too much? Mind? I said incredulously. I'm thrilled. I don't know. Jay's face clouded and he swept one hand vaguely at the reporter's. They should have spared you all this. Oh, I don't mind that either, I assured him quickly. Why, you should have seen her. She's beautiful. Jay, go on down to the nursery, and they'll give you a peek at her. His face took on a worried frown. Listen here, honey, he began. Didn't they tell you? I pushed at him playfully with my hand. Go down and see our little girl. The frown darkened. In another, it could have been the beginnings of an anger or a deep emotion. It was stubborn. I don't want to see her. I stared at him appalled. Jay? The reporters surged in on us again. An overwhelming tidal wave. One of them was carrying little Lisa in her pink blanket. And before we knew what had happened, Jay was negligently brushed aside, and they were arranging her in a cuddly lump at my side, flashbulbs popping wildly from every angle. I blinked, trying to shield the baby's eyes. Listen, Jay, I started again, but before I could finish, the charge nurse appeared again, looking very starched and disapproving, and whisked the baby away again. She paid not the faintest attention to Jay as he trailed after her, and he came back looking wrathful. Blankety-blank stuff shirt. Won't even let me touch her. It's bad enough to know she has to be. Oh, Jay, hush, I begged, struggling to raise myself, for the reporters were looking at him and nudging each other, and that hateful, too familiar look on their faces, the look that says... You've got your nerve acting like anyone else would act. Jay started to bluster it out. But I was dripping weak tears and he subsided, bending over and pressing my two cheeks between his hands. Goodbye now, pretty. I'll come tomorrow and see you. Keep your chin up and say, don't feel too bad, will you?
I sat up, catching at his hand. Jay, what's the matter with you? I protested, but he straightened up swiftly and fairly ran from the room, almost colliding with the charge nurse in the arched doorway. The reporters were sniggering in the corner, and one of them came forward and asked questions that made me gasp. That's a personal matter, you filthy-minded. Listen to it, said the reporter, poking his companion in the ribs with a quickening, baffled fury. Well, I shouldn't complain. At least the doctors and nurses had been decent to me. I couldn't ask more than that. I suppose it was because, being what they were, they saw me for what I was. Like themselves, I bled when I was cut, went to sleep under drugs, sweated cold sweat, and cried out on the delivery table like any other woman. They knew. To them, Lisa wasn't a freak. She was a miracle. The charge nurse, her face as starched as her uniform, shooed the reporters out of the room. Visiting hours are over, she said. And Miss D has to rest. You'll think nobody has ever seen a baby before. This is a pretty special baby, said the foul-mouthed reporter with a sneer and laged a large dominated credit on the edge of my bed. Thanks for the pictures, Mrs. D. I threw the bill straight in his face. Take your filthy money back and get out of here, you grek, I raged. I'm not a sideshow freak. And if you printed those pictures in your dirty little scandal sheet, I'll sue you for every minimum you and your rotten boss have got. The charge nurse motioned at the reporters threateningly, and I lay sobbing, exhausted into my pillow. The charge nurse shepherded them down the hall, and I heard the elevator stop and then start. After a minute, the charge nurse came back, and I heard her quick steps cross my room. And then she bent over and patted my shoulder softly. You poor kid, she whispered. You poor kid. You meet them, and they're kind everywhere, don't you? Well, never mind them. They don't know the difference. I tell you, they scrappered when I got after them. Listen, you know what I am, Dee. Well, let me tell you, I feel ashamed of myself, I say. I'm good and ashamed of the wonderful race I supposedly belong to. Her voice was vehement with wrath, but I felt kindness, instinct with the anger. Still whimpering softly, I rolled over and looked up her flat gray eyes. I tried to choke back my tears. Thanks, I whispered. There are a few decent people. The charge nurse smiled a little sadly. You are rather a fool, you know, she said in a studied offhand voice. The baby and all? It's not you they resent, it's that. So many of us can't have children now. More of, of our kind of women are sterile every year she sighed. One would think they'd be glad, but that's not the way they are. 
So when you, one of your kind, has a baby, they resent it. It's just subliminated jealousy. They turn it into a holy crusade. You've heard, maybe, about the legislation to outlaw. She stopped abruptly, almost visually cramming her words back into her mouth. I gulped with a little hiccup sob. I don't know, I quavered. I don't know I could. I was so surprised when I found out about the baby. You lie down and take it easy, said the charge nurse with a brisk kindness. Try to sleep and you'll feel better. She gave my shoulder another little pat. Don't take it too hard. I lay down, but I didn't sleep. I listened to the hundred little noises that are compounded in the silence of the big hospital. The sounds and light, small smells. The millions of rustlings and creakings and breaths of sharp scents. The elevator shot up to the floor. A telephone shrilled in one of the offices. A man's authoritative voice spoke a few words in the next room. The plastic screens at the window buzzed in and out, in and out, with the breath of the building. There were steps in the hall, and I became aware that two nurses were peering curiously through the open archway. One nurse said softly, Well, now I've seen everything. Another, sharper voice cut in. Are they gonna let that live, Sandy? Of course not, silly. You know better than that. It's a scientific kind of freak. They want to study it a while. It's kind of cute, a third voice said. Hesitantly. Looks like any other baby to me. Oh, but then you can always tell them if you know how. I was in the delivery room when, well, oh, I'll tell you about it later. Don't say anything to the charge nurse about it, though. She's a little cracked on the subject. She nearly bit off my head this morning, and I just said, but anyhow, you give them an inch and they'll take a mile. Pretty soon they'll be thinking they're human. I can't have children. You can't, Judy. Why should that thing in there? A murmured protest then. The sharp voice went on. Now I always tolerate as the next one, I hope. It's all rubbish when they say no nice woman would go out with a syntho man. And really, I had some wonderful dates. But the woman and they marry, I guess. But you do have to draw a line somewhere. You can't let the brat live. Why, there's no way to tell. And adults all very well, mind you. The men are awfully handsome, but... A synthandroid child? Why, it's obscene. The voices moved on. And feeling sick in every nerve, I closed my eyes, letting my head lull on the pillow. Pressing the sleep stud on my client chest. The tolerant ones are worse than the others. I thought, with a weary hurt, and through the sound of a crying child somewhere in my brain's synthetic cells waded off into a deep, fuzzy sleep.
lumber. This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM in Santa Barbara, 91.9. I'm Hannah Wolf. What we just heard was Women Only by Marion Zimmer Bradley. In the background, we were listening to uh, Kabitogama by... Jotskad, who is a um, kind of electronic slash noise uh, collage musician out of Ithaca, New York. Now we are listening to Iraq B or Iraq. B by Kevin Drum. So um, which is again uh, kind of noise, current noise music. This this piece and this album in particular was self-released, but he is released on other anyway so I thought that I would talk a little bit about the story um, one thing that's really exciting about reading books from different people from different walks of life is that you get different perspectives so in this piece uh, the main character is pregnant, and it's the point of view of this kind of android woman who got pregnant by her human husband, and the kind of uh, almost uh, racism that she experiences from this kind of inner technological uh, relationship. And so pregnancy in science fiction was not very commonly written about during this period of time. Most of the people who did write about it were women. So uh, I found this great book, uh, Betty King's Women of the Future, the female main character in science fiction, and it really looks like it's somebody's literature review for their thesis, but it's a good summary of kind of looking at different um, short stories and what kinds of adjectives were used towards these female main characters. And I found, looking through her story, uh, her summaries, that 
all of the stories that involved birth or infants were written by women during the golden age of science fiction. For example, The Only Mother by Judith Merrill in 1948 or When the Bow Breaks, co-authored by C.L. Moore in 1944. Or two stories that I had previously spoken about on um, an earlier episode, a story by Anne McCaffrey... called Freedom of Race, and I'll Kill You Tomorrow by Helen Huber. So, again, it's, a, it's an idea that is, is women talk about, and they talk about pregnancy in their stories, and it's a perspective that, you know, men can't really bring to science fiction unless they, you know, do extensive interviewing. So we'll hear another story. Thanks for listening. This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction and fantasy by female authors on KCSB FM, Santa Barbara, 91.9. I'm Hannah Wolf. In this warm and fanciful story of a Connecticut farmer, Marion Zimmer Bradley has caught some of the glory that is man's love for man, no matter who he is nor whence he's from. By heck, you'll like Little Matt. I will be reading Year of the Big Thaw by Marion Zimmer Bradley, which was first published in Fantastic Universe, May of 1954. You say that Matthew is your own son, Mr. Emmett? Yes, Reverend Duane, and a better boy never stepped, if I do say it, as shouldn't. I've trusted him to drive a team for me since he was 11, and you can't say more than that for a farm boy. Way back when he was a little shaver so high, when the war came on, he was bounden he was going to sail with this Admiral Farragut. You know boys that age, like runaway colts. I couldn't see no good in his being cabin boy on some tarnation navy ship, and I told him so. If he'd want to sail out on a whaling ship, I'd low and I'd have let him go. But Marthy, that's the boy's ma, took on so that Matt stayed home. Yes, he's a good boy and a good son. We'll miss him a powerful lot if he gets this scholarship thing. But I low, it'll be good for the boy to get some learning besides what he gets in school here. It's right kind of you, Reverend, 
to look over this application thing for me. Well, if he is your son, Mr. Emmett, why did you write birthplace unknown on the line here? Reverend Duane, I'm glad you asked me that question. I've been turning it over in my mind, and I've just about come to the conclusion it wouldn't be know-how fair to hold it back. I didn't lie when I said Matt was my son, because he's been a good son to me and Marthy. But I'm not his pa, and Marthy ain't his ma. So, could be I stretched the truth just a mite. Reverend Duane, it's a tarnal funny yarn, but I'll walk into the meeting house and swear to it on a stack of Bibles as thick as a cord of wood. You know I've been farming the old corning place for these past seven years. It's a good flat Connecticut bottomland, but it isn't like our land up in Hampshire where I was born and raised. My pa called it the Hampshire Grants, and all that was King's Land when his pa came in there and started farming at the foot of Stuttok Mountain. That's engine for fires, folks say, because the engines used to build fires up there in the spring for some of their heathen doodads. Anyhow, up there in the mountains, we see eternal power of quare there. You call to mind the year we had the big thaw, about 12 years before the war? You mind the blizzard that year? I heard tell it spread down most to New York. And at Fort Orange, the place they call Albany now, the Hudson froze right over it, so they say. But those York folks do a sight of exaggerating, I'm told. Anyhow, when the ice went out, there was an almighty good thaw all over, and when the snow run off Stuttok Mountain, there was a good-sized hunk of farmland in our valley went underwater. The creek on my farm flowed over the bank, and there was a foot of water in the cowshed. And down in the swimming hole in the back pasture wasn't nothing but a big gully fifty foot and more across, rushing through the pasture, deep as a lake and brown as the old cow. You know freshnet floods? Full up with sticks and stones and old dead trees and somebody's old shed floating down the middle. And I swear to goodness, Parson, that stream was running along so fast I saw four-inch cobblestones floating and bumping along. I tied the cow and the calf and Kate. She was our white mare. You mind, she went lame last year and I had to shoot her. But she was just a young mare then and skittish as all get out. But she was a good little mare. Anyhow, I tied the whole kit and caboodle of them in the woodshed behind the house, where they'd be dry. Then I started to get the milk pail. Right then, I heard the gosh-awfulest screech I've ever heard in my life. Sounded like thunder and freshet and a forest fire all at once. I dropped the milk pail and heard Marthy scream inside the house. And I run outside. Marthy was already there in the yard, and she pointed up in the sky and yelled, Look up there yonder! We stood looking up at the sky over Shattuck Mountain, where there was a great big chute now. I don't know as I can call its name, but it was like a trail of fire in the sky, and it was making the dangest racket you ever heard, Reverend. Looked kind of like one of them Fourth of July skyrockets, but it was a big as a house. 
Marthy was screaming, and she grabbed me and hollered, Hez! Hez! What in Tucket is it? And when Marthy cusses like that, Reverend, she don't know what she's saying. She's so scared. I was plum scared myself. I heard Liza, that's our young'un, Liza Grace, that got married to the tailor boy. I heard her crying on the stoop, and she came flying out with her penny all black and hollered to Marthy that the pea soup was burning. Marthy let out another screech and ran for the house. That's a woman for you. So I quieted Liza down some, and I went and told Marthy it weren't no more than one of them shooting stars. Then I went and did the milking. But you know, while we were sitting down to supper, there came the most awful grinding, screeching, pounding crash I ever heard. Sounded as if it were in the back pasture, but the house shook as if something had hit it. Marthy jumped a mile, and I never saw such a look on her face. Hez, what was that? Shoot now, nothing but the freshet, I told her. But she kept on about it. You reckon that shooting star fell in our pasture, Hez? Well now, I don't low it did nothing like that, I told her. But she was jittery as an old hen, and it weren't like her know-how. She said it sounded like trouble, and I finally quieted her down by saying I'd saddle Kate up and go have a look. I kind of thought, though, I didn't tell Marthy that somebody's house had floated away in the freshnet and run aground in our back pasture. So I saddled up Kate and told Marthy to get some hot rum ready in case there was some poor soul run aground back there. And I rode Kate back to the back pasture. It was mostly uphill because of the top of the pasture is on high ground and it sloped down to the creek on the other side of the rise. Well, I reached the top of the hill and looked down. The creek were a regular river now, rushing along like Nigeri. On the other side of it was a stand of timber, then the slope of the Shattuck Mountain. And I saw right away the long streak where all the timber had been cut out in a big scoop with roots standing up in the air and a big slide of rocks down to the water. It was still raining a mite, and the ground was sloshy and squatchy under my feet. Kate scrunched her hooves and got real bulky, not liking it a bit. When we got to the top of the pastures, he started to whine and wicker and stamp, and no matter how loud I woed, she kept on a stampin', and I was plumb scared she'd pitch me off into the mud. Then I started to smell a funny smell, like something burning. Now, don't ask me how anything could burn in all that water, because I don't know. When we came up on the rise, I saw the contraption. Reverend, it was the most tarnal, crazy contraption I ever saw. It was bigger nor my cow shed, and it was... Long and thin and sh as shiny as Marthy's old pewter pitcher her ma brought from England. It had a pair of red rods sticking out behind and a crazy globe fitted up where the top ought to be. It was stuck in the mud, turned halfway over on the little side of roots and rocks, and I could see what had happened all right. The thing must have been now... Reverend, you can say what you'd like, 
but the thing must have flew across Shattuck and landed on the slope in the trees, then turned over and slid down the hill. That must have been the crash we heard. The rods weren't just red. They were red hot. I could hear them sizzle as the rain hit them. In the middle of the infernal contraption, there was a door, and it hung all to other as if every hinge on it had been wrenched half off. As I pushed old Kate alongside it, I heard somebody hollering alongside the contraption. I didn't know how to get the words, but it must have been for help, because I looked down, and there was a man a-flopping along in the water. He wasn't a big fellow, and he wasn't swimming, just thrashing and hollering. So I pulled off my coat and boots and hove in after him. The stream was running fast, but he was near the edge, and I managed to catch on to an old tree root and hang on, keeping his head out of the water till I got my feet aground. Then I hauled him onto the bank. Up above me, Kate was still whinnying and raising Ned, and I shouted at her as I bent over the man. While reverend, he sure did give me a surprise. Weren't no proper man I'd ever seen before. He was wearing some kind of red clothes, real shiny and sort of stretchy, and not wet from the water like you'd expect, but dry, and it felt like that silk and Indian rubber stuff mixed together. And it was such a bright red that at first I didn't see the blood on it. When I did, I knew he was a goner. His chest was all stove in, smashed to pieces. One of the old tree roots must have jabbed him as a current flung him down. I thought he were dead already, but then he opened up his eyes. A funny color they were, greeny-yellow, and I swear, Reverend, when he opened them eyes, I felt he was reading my mind. I thought maybe he might be one of them circus fellers in their flying contraptions that hang at the bottom of a balloon. He spoke to me in English, kind of choky and stiff, not like Joe the Portuguese sailor, or like those tarnal dumb Frenchies up in Canada way, but, well, funny. He said, My baby in ship, get baby. He tried to say more, but his eyes went shut, and he moaned hard. I yelped, God Almighty! Excuse me, Reverend, but I was so blame upset. That's just what I did say. God Almighty, man! You mean there's a baby in that there dingful contraption? He just moaned, so after spreading my coat around the man a little bit, I just plunged in that there river again. Reverend, I heard tell once about some tomfold idiot got going over Nagari in a barrel, and I tell you, it was like that when I tried crossing the freshet to reach the contraption. I went under and down and was whacked by the floating sticks and whirled around in the freshet, but somehow, I don't know how, by the pure grace of God, I got across that raging torrent and clumb up to where the crazy dinfold machine was sitting. Ship, he'd call it. But that were no ship, Reverend. It was some flying dragon kind of thing. It was real scary looking, but I clumb up to the little door and hauled myself inside it. And sure enough, there was other people in the cabin, only they was all dead. 
There was a lady and a man, and some kind of animal looked like a bobcat, only smaller, with a funny-shaped rooster comb thing on its head. They all, even the cat thing, was wearing those shiny, stretchy clothes. And they all was so battered and smashed, I didn't even bother to hunt for their heartbeats. I could see by a look. They were dead as a doornail. Then I heard a funny little whimper, like a kitten, and in a funny rubber cushion thing, there was a little baby boy, looked about six months old. He was howling lusty enough, and when I lifted him out of the cradle kind of thing, I saw why. That boy baby, he was wet, and his little arm was twisted under. That there flying contraption must have smashed down awful hard. But that rubber hammock was so soft and cushiony, all it did was jolt him good. I looked around, but I couldn't find anything to wrap him in, and the baby didn't have a stitch on him, except a sort of spongy paper diaper. Wet as sin. So I finally lifted up the lady, who had a long cape thing around her, and I took the cape off her real gentle. I knew she was dead, and she wouldn't be needing it, and that the boy baby would catch his death if I took him out bare naked like that. She was probably the baby's ma, a right pretty woman she was, but smashed up something shameful. So anyhow, to make a long story short, I got that baby boy back across that Nigeria Falls somehow and laid him down by his papa, the man opened his eyes and said in a choky voice, Take care, baby. I told him I would and said I'd try to get him up to the house where Marthy could doctor him. The man told me not to bother. I dying, he says. We come from planet, star up there, crash here. His voice trailed off into a language I couldn't understand, and he looked like he was praying. I bent over him and held his head on my knees real easy, and I said, Don't worry, mister. I'll take care of your little fellow until your folks come after him. Before God, I will. So the man closed his eyes, and I said, Our father, which art in heaven. And when I got through, he was dead. I got him up on Kate, but he was cruel heavy, for all he was such a tall, skinny fellow. Then I wrapped that there baby up in the cape thing and took him home and give him to Marthy. And the next day I buried the fellow in the South Meadow. And next meeting day, we had the baby baptized, Matthew Daniel Emmett, and brought him up just like our own kids. That's all. All, Mr. Emmett? Didn't you ever find out where that ship really came from? Why, Reverend, he said it come from a star. Dying men don't lie, you know that. I asked the teacher about them planets, he mentioned, and she said that on one of the planets, can't right remember the name, March or Mark or something like that, she says some big scientist feller with a telescope saw canals on that planet. And they have to be pretty near as big as this here Erie Canal to see them so far off. And if they could build canals on that planet, I don't know why they couldn't build a flying machine. I went back the next day 
when the water was down a little to see if I could get the rest of them folks and bury them. But the flying machine had broke up and washed down the creek. Marthy still got the cape thing. She's a powerful saving woman. We never did tell Matt, though. Might make him feel funny to think he didn't really belong to us. But, but, Mr. Emmett, didn't anyone ask questions about the baby? Where you got it? Well, now, I low they was curious. Because Marthy hadn't been in the family way, and they knew it. But up here, folks mind their own business pretty well, and I just let them wonder. I told Liza Grace I found her a new little brother in the back pasture, and of course, it was the truth. When Liza Grace growed up, she thought it was a jest, one of those yarns old folks tell the little shavers. And had Matthew ever shown any differences from the other children that you could see? Well, Reverend, not so you could notice. He's powerful smart, but his real pa and ma must have been right smart, too, to build a flying contraption that could come so far. Of course, when he were about 12 years old, he started reading folks' minds, which didn't seem exactly right. He'd tell Marthy what I was thinking and things like that. He was just at the pesky age. Liza Grace and Minnie... We're both a courtin' then, and he'd drive their boyfriends crazy telling them what Liza Grace and Minnie were a-thinkin', and tease the gals by telling them what the boys were thinking about. There weren't no harm in the boys, though. It was all teasin'. But it just weren't decent somehow. So I took him out behind the woodshed and give his britches a good dustin' just to remind him that that kind of thing weren't polite no-how. And Reverend Duane... He ain't never done it since. This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB-FM, Santa Barbara 91.9. I'm Hannah Wolf. That was... Year of the Big Thaw by Marion Zimmer Bradley, which was first published in... Fantasy Universe, May of 1954. In the background of Year of the Big Thaw was Iraq, or Eurek, by B by Kevin Drum. Now we are listening to Accept off of Lost Girls Feeling EP, which was just released last month. Lost Girls is a duo Jenny Havalve and Havard Voldman out of Oslo, Norway. So about the story we just heard. I apologize for stumbling some some of over the some over the vernacular. It's kind of hard to get through. Um, and I also apologize for anyone who takes offense to Marion Zimmer Bradley's portrayal of 
I don't know, country people or, uh, or some of the, the terminology that the main character used. I thought it was interesting that this, what, this story was very similar to Superman's birth story or his founding story. Uh, Superman first appeared in comics in 1938, so this is uh, about... Uh, six years after no sorry 16 years after Superman was published so not particularly an original story per se but definitely an interesting take on it so I wanted to thank y'all for listening to Books and Blondes with Ray Guns Thanks, and tune in next week for more stories by female authors at 7 p.m. on KCSB FM in Santa Barbara. I'll leave you listening to the rest of Except by Lost Girls.